We're certainly thankful for the opportunity that God has allowed us to enjoy this evening, to assemble and to gather as we currently are. It truly is a great blessing that we each have to have life. Paul stated in Acts 17 verse 28 on that occasion about how that it indeed is God that giveth us life and breath and all things to enjoy. And so tonight as we've come together on this occasion for the express purpose of worship, it's our desire that all things would be done both in spirit and in truth, John 4, 24, and that that which is done will in fact magnify and exalt the name of our, of our Heavenly Father. It is the case now for a few Sunday evenings, in fact seven counting this one, that we have given attention to the Bible and physics. And all along the way we have studied a number of things, not the least of which are summarized in a very few thoughts on that opening slide. We have noticed in perhaps most prominent fashion that science, in fact, is in accord to the proclamations of truth, and that should be a great encouragement to all of us. We shouldn't be perturbed and bothered when someone, supposed scholar or scientist, has the nerve to say that what he or she may say proves the Bible is wrong, for it simply isn't so. The Bible is always right. Thy word is true from the beginning, and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. The famous refrain of Psalm 119, verse 160. It is for that reason we've learned not only about that harmony, but we've noticed that many things contained in the Bible actually foreshadowed scientific discoveries centuries down the line. And that foreknowledge should remind us again that the author of the Scriptures is none other than the Holy Spirit Himself, 2 Peter 1 verse 21. Furthermore, we have looked at a few specific examples, such as air pressure, the movement of the wind and found the Bible makes reference to those things and what the Bible says is true about it. The treasures of the snow, the matters in oceanography, the features concerning even the existence of atoms, the characteristics of thermodynamics, and the marvelous wonder attaching to the greatness of the design we see in the world about us. All of that is touched upon and many times stated rather thoroughly in the Scriptures. Our lesson last Sunday evening... Interestingly enough, looked at the age of the universe. And we found that although science says one thing, and often says it rather forcefully, the Scriptures in rather plain fashion state the universe isn't nearly as old as most scientists and astronomers would lead us to think. In fact, numbered only in a few thousand years and not multiplied millions or even billions. But it is the case tonight that as we come to this particular lesson... I thought it entirely reasonable to look at the book of Genesis and specifically those three chapters, chapters 6, 7, and 8, and look at the flood of Noah's day because much related to physics is attached to the character of those events of those chapters. Certainly we'll not in a short amount of time be able to expound fully upon the nature of the implications for physics, but nonetheless a few items I think would be well worth our while. And so it is we'll use this particular lesson to close this series on the Bible and physics, perhaps reserving some additional matters for a much later time, or at least a later time, with another series at its proper location. But first, the setting of these three chapters in Genesis would be a good thing to recollect. You recall that in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, there was that marvelous record of God's creation, 
the thoroughness, the pristine power and beauty of it, all reminding us of the thoroughness of God's power and His capability to do anything that is in accordance to His will. And thus, in six days, He brought this universe into the organized fashion which we now see it. He brought into existence those things we appreciate as light, as the character of life itself even. And as we've appreciated all of them, we notice that in the chapters that follow, there was a progression throughout time for 1,656 years. As those years rolled by, we noticed many things about life proceeded as you would expect, but there were some great differences. People lived a very long time back at that time on earth. You remember Methuselah, age 969 when he died. And you remember good old Noah, age 950 when he died. And you remember Adam, age 930 when he died. These individuals were living almost a millennium, almost a thousand years in many instances. In fact, even the young ones often lived many hundreds of years even at that. As you can imagine, the length of lifespans, the earth's population increased dramatically. From that initial pair of Adam and Eve, the population expanded very, very quickly in the centuries that followed. You will appreciate by easy consideration that the character of the surface of earth was different then than it is now. And we'll detail that a little bit more as the lesson proceeds this evening. But also think about the character as we're going to discuss the flood in some details in just a few moments. You might remember that at least as far as the biblical record, there was no rain at this early stage of earth's climate. In Genesis 2.6, the only reference therein made is that God watered everything with a mist that proceeded upward. Interesting that we have no record of rain until we arrive at Genesis chapter 7. As you think about the nature of that rain, that leads me to at least observe that which led to the flood. By the time we arrive at the opening verses of Genesis 6, again 1,656 years having now elapsed, we know many generations of human beings have come. However, as we arrive at this time, it's also important to notice that wickedness and sin had also increased. So much so that God observed in Genesis 6 verse 5 that the thoughts of men's heart was only evil continually. That degree of wickedness led the great God of heaven to make this decree. A decree that I've summarized upon that slide. A decree that was read by Brother Derek just a moment ago. As you'll notice in Genesis chapter 6, it says in verse number 7, And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, and the creeping thing, and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. The wickedness of man, the sin that was so rampant, had advanced to the point that it was the decision of the God of heaven that I will wipe out this that is now come to be, beast and man alike, and there's only going to be the salvation of those of whom we begin to read in verse 8. For in verse number 8 it says, But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. In the midst of the wickedness that prevailed upon earth, in the midst of the torrent of evil that was present, there was the shining beacon of a man named Noah. 
And it was of him that verse 8 says, He found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Sometimes it's true that you and I seem to be surrounded by evil. And it seems to be so overwhelming in its character. You might think for just a moment, what if literally every other person on earth except you and your immediate family were given over to sinfulness, given over to wickedness, given over to pursuing that which was against the will and law of God. And that seems to be the case in this heightened case of wickedness in this early age and time. As you appreciate the rolling forward in Genesis chapter number 6, you now notice that determination led to a flood. And it was no ordinary flood. It was no shall we say, somewhat larger amount of rain. As we'll see in a moment, much is said in the Scriptures that interestingly tell us about some of the details of this flood, this coming amount of water. It is for now, you might notice, that the existence of that flood is used in the following way many times in the Scriptures. It is not at all unusual for some to make the very strong argument that the early chapters in Genesis are a story. They are a myth. They are not to be taken literally. Many have been the articles that I have encountered that have made that claim. Don't believe it for a moment. The early chapters in Genesis, chapters 1 through 11, are just as historical, just as literal, and just as factually true as is any other part in the book of Genesis. In fact, isn't it interesting that when our Lord in Matthew 24 was teaching the people of his day about the lesson concerning the end of time, he used the reality of Noah's flood to make his point. Question, if Noah's flood wasn't real, should you and I expect the end of time isn't going to be real either? Should we expect the Lord is not really going to come back, but rather it was just a myth or a story? Of course not. Just as surely as Jesus is coming back someday, John 14 verses 1 to 3 we appreciate that Noah's flood literally and really happened. Not only that, Peter, another inspired individual in 2 Peter chapter 3, uses again this same matter to describe the features concerning the end of time. Isn't it true that he makes the point, just as surely as the old world was destroyed by water, so too it's being reserved to be destroyed again by fire, this time not water. Read 2 Peter 3, verses 6 and 7. It is with that in mind, you and I appreciate that all of this really did occur. Think of the devastation that came with a flood of waters as the book of Genesis details. Think of the destruction that that much water would have brought. And yet that which caused all of it was sin. Human sin human wickedness, human iniquity, the human choice to disobey God. That's what drove God to make this decision to destroy it. It is amazing, isn't it, what sin can do. In Isaiah 59, beginning in verse 1, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither His ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God and have hid His face from you that He will not hear. Sin is so potent and so strong that it causes a division between us and God. That division was so mighty and so great at that time that God chose to destroy them. Now we do notice that Noah was a preacher of righteousness, 2 Peter 2 verse 5. 
And so as Noah preached and he preached, sadly enough, only eight souls, including himself, ultimately were saved. That kind of reaction and that kind of cause leads us to note these final two verses. In Ezekiel 18 verse 20, that noble major prophet therein said, The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. But the righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. The soul that sinneth, it shall die, prompting us to consider Romans 6.23, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Perhaps the final two thoughts on that slide would be a brief acknowledgement of that beautiful statement in verse 8 of Genesis 6. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. It might be well worth our while to observe that to say that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord is not to say that God miraculously placed Noah in a bubble and thus protected him from the flood waters. No, that's not what that meant. That meant that Noah was given a system of instruction. A set of instructions, if you please. Build an ark. A hundred and twenty years later, the floodwaters came. He had that much time to ponder over the reality of the coming flood and to obey the statement that God had given to construct the ark. And as he did that, might we appreciate that he responded to that grace of God by his obedient faith. And so it is stated in verse 22, Thus did Noah. According to all that God commanded him, so did he. Nothing finer could be said on perhaps your tombstone or mine than this. Thus did he, according to all that God commanded him, so did he. That's stated twice about Noah. It'll occur again later in Genesis 7 verse 4. For right now, as we observe, Noah at the age of 480 began his work on the ark. Notice, he was no young man. 480 years old was he when he began this construction project and at the age of 600 he completed it. 600 years old and the floodwaters came. That leads us to appreciate the following. When those floodwaters came, Genesis 7 quickly reminds us that for 40 days and 40 nights the waters came in torrential amounts. It rained to the point that in fact the floodwaters rose covering the highest hill upon earth by a full 22 and a half feet. Imagine the highest hill located anywhere on earth covered by water to a depth of 22 and a half feet. That's a great deal of water, isn't it? When you ask and think about the character of that water, these final considerations are worth our, our, our consideration. You'll notice in Genesis chapter 7... Verse number 23 says this as a conclusion statement. And every living substance was destroyed which was upon the face of the ground, both man and cattle and the creeping things and the fowl of the heaven, and they were destroyed from the earth. And Noah only remained alive and they that were with him in the ark. And we appreciate that just as surely as God had shut Noah and the other inhabitants of the ark in, and thus the floodwaters proceeded to come, that we now see the result had been the devastation and death of all but that which was aboard the ark. Finally, we notice in verse 1 of chapter 8 that God remembered Noah. 
the flood waters began to subside. As they began to take their place, we noticed that eventually the ark came to rest on Mount Ararat. And some few months later, Noah and all those aboard emerged from the ark into a world that was now purified from all the stench of the sin that had existed before. We now notice that Noah offered sacrifice as chapter 8 closes. And with that, we notice the incredible features of this flood. So much so that I've simply stated it the following way. The flood waters were such that the surface of this planet after the flood did not look a great deal like what it did before the flood. And we'll talk about that really for the rest of the lesson tonight. What things did the flood waters change? What features of the surface of this planet were not the same after compared to before? And how does the Bible lead us to appreciate those points? First of all, let's consider this initial one. That water that we described a moment ago, that was in such great volume, so much so that the highest hill upon earth was covered by 22 and a half feet. Where did all that water come from? Some might be quick to say, well, isn't there water in the atmosphere of earth? After all, we do see it rain from time to time. What if one were to condense all of the water in all parts of the atmosphere upon earth? Would that be enough water to do what the flood is described as doing in Genesis chapter 6? The answer is absolutely not. In fact, if you were to condense every bit of water out of the atmosphere at any single point on earth, it would only cover all of earth to about two inches at most. It's clear that at this point there's not nearly enough water in the atmosphere to have led to the flood as it's described in chapter 6 through 8 of Genesis. And so that immediately leads us to notice more carefully the language of Genesis 7 verse 11. Notice what the Bible says about where this water came from and some of the features of its origin. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, the same day were all the fountains of the great deep broken up and the windows of heaven were opened. And so we notice that the source of this water is described as being twofold. On the one hand, the fountains of the great deep were broken up and on the other hand, the windows of heaven were opened. Consider with me for a moment that waters of the great deep. The text again simply says, the fountains of the great deep were broken up. It would seem based on that passage and also a few other references throughout the text of the Bible that God in His initial creation had used water as a strong component part of the actual interior to earth. And interestingly enough, some of the features electrically and magnetically of water do harmonize perfectly with the early chapters in Genesis. But at this point, at least we can say, those great caverns of water apparently that were existent some distance beneath the surface of earth, no doubt were at reasonably high pressure and probably at relatively high temperature. And yet we notice that as God released them, we might expect that the process he used may have been earthquakes, volcanoes, or other things like that that set in motion the change of the surface of this planet. After all, there is a fair amount of evidence that at one time the continents of this planet were joined much more closely together than they are today. 
it thus seems that the waters of the flood drove those continents apart and led to their current placement so far removed on the surface of earth currently. We appreciate that Africa is a great distance from some of the other continents, and so too is Europe, and so too is North America. At one time, no doubt, they were all much closer together. Much evidence leads us to that conclusion, but the floodwaters drove them apart. Think of the force involved as you have this much water released from caverns at high pressure beneath the surface of earth. The currents alone would have been substantial. We're each aware of the devastation that a strong wall or current of water can make, and yet think about the whole earth filled with this kind of water. The surface moving with strong and powerful currents. That is at all, though, that we can say. You'll notice that there is still evidence today. Volcanic activity in the middle of the oceans and other things reminding us about the great amount of activity with plate tectonics and other matters that are occurring actually somewhat just beneath the surface of this planet. But you'll notice something else was said, not just the fountains of the great deep. The windows of heaven were opened. It would appear that there were vast amounts of water stored in some region just above earth. Remember on day number two when God fashioned and made the firmament? He said that was placed in the midst of the waters plural. And apparently there were waters then located in some heavenly place, and at least a part of them is what was used to unleash the flood upon the surface of earth. Now we should quickly say that apparently not all of that water was used because later in Psalm 148, those waters are again mentioned as still in existence. It would thus seem that not all of that water out of the heavens was extracted, but only some of it. It is in that regard, we might say, as this particular slide closes, that those floodwaters also lead us to ask about this. Not only the source, but some more features of their consequences. As we have already stated somewhat in passing, think for just a moment about the sheer amount of water spoken of in these passages. To cover the highest hill on earth to a depth of 22 and a half feet at least. And when we imagine and think about the character of that much water, consider that water now in motion as a result of these underground caverns and, their, and the exodus of the water from it. Great strong currents would have existed. Think of the erosion that could have taken place, the movement and displacement of sediment. It is true, isn't it, that on the surface of our earth, there's great examples of this. Consider the Grand Canyon. We have one location there easily appreciated where layer after layer of geological sediment is open for view. What could have dug a trench like that? What could have led it put in motion enough force to displace that much sediment and that much volume in a reasonably brief amount of time? But that isn't the only place. Consider Bryce Canyon or the Zion Canyon also in the western part of our country. All of them provide strong evidence being in harmony with the declarations of the book of Genesis. As you and I think about that, that's just three examples. Many others around the surface of the globe might additionally be listed. Isn't it interesting in light of all of that? As that amount of dirt and that amount of rock 
and that amount of sediment is displaced and then deposited elsewhere, think about the layers that would have been formed and the etching that would have taken place. Impressive to imagine it, isn't it? No wonder it's fair to say that the surface of the planet looked very different after the flood than it did before. Beyond all of that, can we not say that as we think about that water, if it was true then that the water covered the highest hill on earth to 22 and a half feet, where did all the water go after the flood? We certainly wouldn't imagine the evaporation of that much of it. It may well be that that's what's described in the 104th Psalm. Let me invite you to turn there and let's read together what appears to be the case with where all that water went. Psalm 104 and the early parts of that chapter. In particular, may we begin reading in verse number 5 of the 104th Psalm and see if this doesn't describe what God did with the flood waters after the flood. Speaking about God, it says, "...who laid the foundations of the earth, that it should not be removed forever. Thou coverest it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains." There's a reference to the flood waters. They stood above the mountains. But then verse 7 says, "...at thy rebuke they fled. At the voice of thy thunder they hasted away. They go up by the mountains, they go down by the valleys unto the place which thou hast founded for them." Thou hast set a bound that they may not pass over, that they turn not again to cover the earth. You'll notice the verb that's used in Hebrew on that occasion. That particular verb that reads, They hasted away. And then again in the next verse, They go down by the valleys. Those verbs indicate a specific action on the part of God in which He reshaped things and made great caverns or great places in which that water would in fact reside. It thus may well seem that prior to the flood, the surface of earth was much flatter than it is today. But now after the flood, God made basins, ocean basins, if we can call it that, in which this water would now reside. And so the Pacific Ocean is extremely deep, being several miles deep even on average. And so the, the Indian Ocean also is reasonably deep. When you think about God's reshaping and making places for that water to reside, you'll notice that also indicates this. It would seem that there is far more water on the surface of planet Earth after the flood than there was before. For now, all these ocean basins were filled with water. Now, roughly 71% of Earth's surface is covered by water. Maybe before the flood, as you can well imagine, apparently it was far, far less than that. Beyond all of that, can we not say, some interesting characteristics about what one would expect if what we have described tonight is correct. If this kind of erosion took place, if this kind of deposit took place, what would one expect if one were to go out and look at the various sediments as they were laid down in the flood? Oddly enough, I simply wrote one word there, folding. It's near the bottom of that slide. Geologists have known for centuries, basically, that there are times as you go out and look at the various strata geologically that are laid down, sometimes you find it basically like this. It folds almost completely back on top of itself. 
Now, if it was laid down over millions of years, as our geology friends often are willing to say, how could it have ever folded like that and not broken? You and I know you take something plastic and break it typically, and of course you exert enough pressure, it'll fracture and crack. These are not fractured or cracked in any way, but they're perfectly bended. But we would imagine if they were laid down quickly in a flood, that could easily be described and it could easily come to pass. As you might well imagine, that kind of explanation is typically not one that's considered. But even beyond that, the last observation, that kind of folding does seem to provide very strong evidence for the thing we've described as the Noah's Flood. Beyond that, consider two more brief matters in the time that we have this evening. If the flood of chapters 6, 7, and 8 of Genesis took place, what are two other things that you and I would expect to find? Is it not true one would expect to find fossils arranged in a particular way? And let me describe two of them. First of all, as the flood waters rose, we know that animals would certainly proceed to the points of protection that at least they could find, highest points, if you will, or at least points in which the hills may have been holding back the water for a while. However, eventually, even the water would have arrived at where they are, but we would expect to find large numbers of animals all buried at the same time and buried very quickly. Is that what one finds in the fossil evidence? And the answer is yes. Archaeologists and paleontologists have found huge animal graveyards where thousands of animals, it seems, were literally buried alive. Many of them still have their hair completely intact on the surface of their skin. Many of them have the contents of their stomach still perfectly intact. It's clear they didn't deteriorate over long eons of time. It's clear they were buried quickly and preserved that same way. What could explain that? Imagine flood waters as the fountains of the great deep were broken up and the windows of heaven were opened at the same time and waters rushed over the surface of this planet. These dinosaurs and other animals hoarded into the safest place they could find and then covered almost instantly by an overflowing flood of waters. That would explain perfectly these graveyards of animals that we seem to find all over the continents of this earth. In fact, Siberia has many of the most noteworthy ones. As you can appreciate, not only that, even in Alaska, in our own country, it's amazing what kind of finds that the archaeologists have discovered in the years that have passed. All lending support and all lending evidence that the flood of Noah's day did take place. Interestingly enough, as you consider those fossils, I thought one particular one that would be worthwhile might be a picture. A particular kind of fossil is called a polystrate fossil. And my suspicion is you will never hear about that if you're reading in a geology textbook or if you're reading a particular article by someone who believes in evolution because it has to be impossible to describe how a polystrate fossil could occur. The word poly as a prefix just means many and straight just means strata. And so a polystrate fossil is nothing but a fossil that extends over many layers of geologic sediment. 
Now, if our geology friends are right, it should take millions of years for something to span across multiple layers of sediment. How could you then explain a single tree that expands standing straight up through layers upon layers of these strata? It's clear the tree had to be, be buried quickly, almost instantly, and it was preserved that way. The tree clearly didn't grow across millions of years. Trees die long before then. I've never yet seen an explanation for a polystrate fossil by anyone that allows me to take it seriously unless they believe in the book of Genesis. For you and I can imagine, think about the erosion as these torrents of water would have turned these trees upside down at times and left them standing straight up and then buried them quickly in the flood of Noah's day. Oddly enough, many of us may remember that Mount St. Helens erupted back in May of 1980. Now again, that's been only 32 years ago. And yet, we have already found that in Spirit Lake, the lake that is actually at the base of Mount St. Helens, when that volcano erupted, sending trees down the hillside, many of them were buried vertically. And now, they of course are already giving evidence that something like that must be what happened in the arena of the flood of Noah's day. The Bible was right all along. The flood did occur. So much evidence is there to testify to this day that that's exactly what took place. The last thing on that previous slide was the climate. And we'll use that to close our lesson tonight, as well as to draw to a conclusion our series of studies on the Bible and physics. We've hinted already that it seems that things were very different before the flood compared to after. Much more water on the surface of earth after than before. It seems as though, from what you and I read easily in the Bible, the span, the human lifespan, was much shorter after than before. People were living nearly a thousand years before the flood, but afterward, the lifespans very quickly dropped to about three or four hundred, and then quickly after that, on to about one hundred, and finally on to about seventy. What might have prompted that dramatic change? Maybe one feature would touch upon the change in climate. You might remember earlier we noted that at least part of the water in the atmosphere that offered some protection was in fact used to provide the waters for the flood. Maybe the residual water in the atmosphere as it was moved much further away from earth allowed the degree of protection to be lessened. And the earth's magnetic field seems to have lessened as well. Maybe both of those things might be highlighted by this particular statement. As the climate of earth changed, may I suggest, could that be part of the explanation for what led to the extinction of the dinosaurs? We know dinosaurs lived. We found their fossils on all seven continents. We know they were here. But as far as we know, they aren't here now. There are no creatures that weigh a, the number of tons that some of those did. They have the size that some of those did, at least as far as we know. Where did the dinosaurs go? Admittedly, throughout the centuries, there have been some strange theories about the extinction of the dinosaurs. The most prevalent one, at least at this time, has to do with an asteroid. I don't think that has anything to do with it. You'll notice that maybe it was this. Inasmuch as that climate changed, remember, 
we have found also a tropical climate all over the globe before the flood. But afterward, with that protection gone, maybe things were so different that there wasn't the adequate amount of food for them. Maybe they weren't easily able to adapt as some of the other animal creatures. And so in time, they just died away. It seems to me that to this point, the most reasonable biblical explanation... It is fair to say, though, as we close our series of studies on the Bible and physics, that these thoughts are worthwhile, it would seem. Our whole goal in the series has been to edify ourselves as we consider the Bible and physics. Physics, at least the facts of physics, do not contradict the Bible. They substantiate it, they corroborate it, and they increase our faith in it. It might be tonight as you think about your spiritual journey through life and your current spiritual status in life. If things aren't well with you, let the Bible's truth on science lead you to appreciate its truth on every other subject as well. There is a plan of salvation and God demands that we adhere to it. Have you believed with all your heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, John eight twenty four? Have you repented of your sins, Luke thirteen three? Have you confessed the sweet name of Jesus as the Son of God, Matthew 10, 32 and 33? Have you been immersed, baptized in water for forgiveness of sins? Acts 2 verse 38. If you have, then continue on a life of faithfulness, holding hand in hand with God and with His Son. If, however, you have not done that, then why not tonight? We'd be happy to assist you in that obedience. If you have wandered away from the fold of faithfulness, why not come back to your first love? We'd be honored to pray with you and also for you. If we could be of any assistance to you at this point, Brother Jonathan has chosen a hymn of encouragement. And if we could help you, won't you come while we stand and while we sing?